Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yeah, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week, we meet for an hour to experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joy and our lessons learned. We share topics that tradition tells us there are some things we just don't talk about. But here we live beyond the judgment and the wreckage. Each week we start right where we are. You're listening to Radio Fairfax. Fairfax, Virginia on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Should you miss us or know it's date night, not to worry, you can catch our podcast on YouTube. Just key in, frankly speaking, with Tyra G. And keep those emails coming. You can get in touch with me at Tyra at TyraGarlington.com. want to thank you so much for tuning in. A special thanks to you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. Well, here we are in February. This is our last program celebrating Black History Month, the shortest month of the year. This is also the month that the United States and a few other countries celebrate Black History. Do you have any idea how that happened? Do you know why? To create our common thought space this month, we will take a discovery walk back in history together for a gentle reminder. Black History Month is an annual celebration of achievements by African Americans and a time for recognizing the central role of blacks in U.S. history. Yeah, we've contributed, y'all, but it's not always been the case. The event grew out of Negro History Week, the brainchild of noted historian Carter G. Woodson and other prominent African Americans. Since 1976, every U.S. president has officially designated the month of February as Black History Month. The story of Black History Month begins in 1915, half a century after Listen, after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States, that September, the Harvard-trained historian Carter G. Woodson and the prominent minister, Jesse E. Moreland, founded the Association for the Study of Negro History, an organization dedicated to researching and promising and promoting achievements by black Americans and other peoples of African descent. Known today as the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, 
The group sponsored a National Negro History Week in 1926, choosing the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. The event inspired schools and communities nationwide to organize local celebrations, establish history clubs, and host performances and lectures. Did you know the NAACP was founded on February 12, 1909, the centennial anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln. In the decades that followed, mayors of cities across the country began issuing yearly proclamations recognizing Negro History Week. By the late 1960s, thanks in part to the civil rights movement and a growing awareness of black identity, Negro History Week had evolved into Black History Month on many college campuses. President Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month in 1976, calling upon the public to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. Each year, beginning on February 1, an entire month of events are planned nationwide, honoring the contributions of African Americans. The theme for Black History Month in 2019 is Black Migrations, tracking the continuous movement of blacks from the American South to the industrialized North and beyond. Beginning in the early 20th century, a growing number of black industrial leaders and black entrepreneurs emerged as their families excuse me, relocated from farms to cities and from the South to the more industrialized Northeast and Midwest. Along with the emergence of new music genre like ragtime, blues, and jazz, the Harlem Renaissance in New York City also signaled a blossoming of the visual and literary arts. The Negro movement named after, excuse me, the Negro movement named after the New Negro in 1925 anthology edited by Alan Locke. The movement also included new African-American cultural expressions. I'm sorry. <clears throat> cultural expressions across the urban areas in the Northeast and the Midwest United States affected by the African-American Great Migration, of which Harlem was the largest. The Harlem Renaissance was considered to be the rebirth of African-American arts. Though it was centered in Harlem, the neighborhood of the borough of Manhattan in New York City, many black writers from African and Caribbean colonies who lived in Paris were also influenced by the Harlem Renaissance. Well into the century, blacks continued to break the color barrier in sports, business, and politics and have recently challenged the traditional bastions of wealth 
and power at the local, state, and national level. This week, Frankly Speaking is celebrating a kaleidoscope of African Americans who have made and are making deposits into our rich history. After a short break, we will salute one of my favorite baseball players, who I'm sad to say we lost this past Saturday. You stay tuned now. This is Radio Fairfax, free-form programming, created by the people, for the people of Fairfax County, Virginia. Call us or email us. 703-560-TALK or Radio Fairfax at fcac.org. This is Ted Little inviting you to be with me this Monday at noon for Jukebox Noon Tunes. I'll play music from the 50s through today, as varied as Elvis and the Bare Naked Ladies. Highlights include news with a humorous twist, movies you may have missed, and a preview of your favorite Monday night TV programs. I want you to be with me Mondays at noon on Jukebox Noon Tunes. Hello, my name is Sharon Murray. I'm your host on Heartbeat, Thursdays at 12 noon. It's an inspirational program filled with messages of hope and love and a variety of heartwarming, inspirational music. You can succeed as long as success is in every beat of your heart. And I look forward to you joining me on Heartbeat, Thursdays at 12 noon on Radio Fairfax. An important message from Medicare. When my son first told me about extra help from Medicare, I said, thanks, but no thanks. I didn't want any help paying for my prescriptions. I told him, I don't have much money coming in, but... I still have my pride. Besides, I, I looked into it a couple years ago. I figured if I didn't qualify then, I wouldn't qualify now either. My, oh my, am I ever glad my son didn't give up on me. He reminded me that I was on a limited income and that it was easier than ever for people like me to qualify. So I called and he was right. Now I pay just a few dollars for generics and a few dollars more for brand name prescriptions. With extra help, I can afford the prescriptions I need. Thanks, Medicare. Get the extra help you need to stay healthy. Visit socialsecurity.gov or call 1-800-772-1213. I'm Dr. Linda Van Eldick, a biomedical scientist supported by the American Health Assistance Foundation. I'm dedicated to educating the public because it's important for all of us to understand this debilitating disease. I conduct research aimed at discovering new and effective treatments for Alzheimer's disease. This is critical because every 70 seconds someone in America is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. That's more than a thousand people a day. Preliminary data show that exercise, a healthy diet, and keeping your mind active may help reduce your risk. At our website, ahaf.org, experts will answer your questions and address your concerns. Find out about promising research the Foundation funds and learn how to live with or care for someone with the disease. Call 1-800-437-2423 or go to ahaf.org for a free brochure on understanding Alzheimer's disease. That's 
437-2423. I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can tie his own shoes. My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the Tooth Fairy. But I got five bucks yesterday. I believe. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to casafamilyday.org, take the Family Day Pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. And we are back. Well, now let's play ball. Crowding the plate, fearsome and fearless, Frank Robinson hammered his way into the Hall of Fame. His legacy, however, was cemented the day he simply stood in the dugout at Old Cleveland Stadium as the first black manager in the major leagues. Robinson, the only player to earn the MVP award in both leagues, died Thursday, February 7, at 83. He'd been in failing health and in hospice care in his home in Bel Air. He was surrounded by family and friends at the time. Robinson hit 586 home runs. He was fourth on the career list behind the only Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, and Willie Mays when he retired and now ranks 10th. An MVP with Cincinnati and Baltimore. He won the Triple Crown while leading the Orioles to their first World Series champion championship in 1966. An All-American outfielder in 12 seasons. He was an All-Star and a first ballot selection to Cooperstown. Yes, Robinson also was a Rookie of the Year and picked up a Golden Globe. But his place in sports history extended far beyond the batter's box and base pass. In 1975, Robinson fulfilled his quest to become the first African-American manager in the big leagues when he was hired by the Cleveland Indians. His impact was immediate and memorable. The Reds, Orioles, and Indians have retired his number 20 and honored him with statues at their stadium. Robson later managed San Francisco, Baltimore, and Montreal. He became the first manager of the Washington Nationals after the franchise moved from Montreal for the 2005 season. The Nationals put him in their ring of honor too. Robbins later spent several years working as an executive for Major League Baseball and for a time oversaw the annual Civil Rights Game. 
He advocated for more minorities throughout baseball and worked with former commissioner Bub, Bud Sillick to develop the Sillick Rule, directing teams to interview at least one minority candidate before hiring a new manager. For all he did on and off the field, Robinson was presented the Presidential Medal of Freedom by George W. Bush in 2005. Former Orioles pitcher Jim Palmer, who also gained first ballot entry into the hall, once called Robinson the best player I ever saw. Starting out in an era when Mays, Aaron, Mickey Mantle, and Ted Williams were the big hitters, Robinson more than held his own over 21 seasons. He finished with 1,812 runs batted in. He played in the World Series five times and homered in each of them. Robinson was the only player to hit a ball completely out of Old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore and once connected for grandstands. Yes, he did. Please understand, everyone can dream and everyone must understand in your heart that dreams can come true. This has been a fun month for me, although the shortest month of the year cannot yet reveal through their stories all the contributions African Americans have made to this great country of ours. However, no worries, Tyra's on the job. Enjoy the next helping. I try not to say sports hero. An athlete may be electrifying and adored and do much for their communities, but real heroes are people who run into burning buildings to save lives. Heroes are people who enrich the lives of others and sometimes move along history. There is one athlete who has to be called a hero. Jackie Robinson was born 100 years ago next week, January 31, 1919, in the small segregated town of Cairo, Georgia, the youngest of five children. A year later, his father left, and the Robinsons moved to Southern California, where Jackie Robinson became one of the most celebrated young athletes in America. He became Lieutenant Robinson in the segregated U.S. Army during World War II, but was court-martialed for refusing to move to the back of a bus on the U.S. Army base in Fort Hood, Texas. Jackie Robinson was proudly unapologetic and was acquitted. As he said many times, I am not concerned with your liking or disliking me. All I ask is that you respect me. He began to play baseball in the old Negro Leagues after the war. There were many talented stars there, like Larry Doby and Satchel Paige, who could and would eventually be signed. But Branch Rickey, who ran the Brooklyn Dodgers, foresaw that the first African-American player in Major League Baseball would also be the star of a daily national drama. I had to get a man who could carry the burden, said Mr. Rickey. I needed a man to carry the badge of martyrdom. He signed Jackie Robinson. He broke into the big leagues in 1947. Most Americans saw baseball then in black and white. 
Bigots in the stands hurled curses and sometimes bottles and threats. Some opposing players slid into him with their spikes. Some opposing pitchers threw at his head. Jackie Robinson played calmly, nobly, and superbly under that profane hail. When civil rights marchers of the 1960s walked across a bridge in Selma or the streets in Birmingham through a blizzard of police sticks, snarling dogs, and water cannons, they could hold in their minds the image of Jackie Robinson walking brave and unbowed to home plate. Jackie Robinson was an athlete, not Martin Luther King in baseball stripes. But his own story galvanized his life, and when he left baseball, he became an activist for integration and justice. As President Barack Obama said, there's a direct line between Jackie Robinson and me. The history Jackie Robinson made helped make America better. I did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? It went zooming across the left field wall. The recent stories about high-profile politicians in Virginia having worn blackface caused many people to remember their own experiences, times that people around them blithely invoked racist caricatures and have made them feel unwelcome or unsafe. We ask you to share your stories about racism at school, either recently or in the past, and here's some of what people told us. Hello, uh, my name is Corinne Jones. The story that I wanted to share was I, I went to Clemson University my senior year, 2007. It was either on Martin Luther King's birthday or it was on the holiday. A group of white kids threw a, a Martin Luther King party and they had some little kitschy slogan for it, like living the dream or something like that. I don't really recall and a lot of kids showed up, uh, a lot of white kids showed up with their skin darkened in some way or with, you know, other stereotypical things like um, like foil on their teeth or 40s in their hand or pads in their butt to make their butt bigger. And it got out on Facebook. And the way the university responded, it, it was interesting being on campus. Like, you're often you might be the only black person in class up there. In the school, they barely wanted to do anything at all. Let's keep the peace was the, the bigger response. You know, at the time I was in college and I'm like, hey, I'm trying to be a good member of society. And at every turn, it's like you're reminded that you're nothing. And you're always going to be thought of as a joke. I guess every time something like this happens, it takes a chunk out of you. My name is Lily Lee, or my Hmong name is Gao. I'm Hmong American. My siblings, my younger sister, my older sister, and my little brother, we made up basically the Asian student body. You know, at first I didn't really think about it. I just felt like it was school. Then the other children started singing songs, and then they would make these gestures. They would slant their eyes up, and then they would slant it down, and they would pull out their shirts like Christmas trees or breasts, and they would sing... Chinese, Japanese, what are these? Christmas trees. And they would do that every single day. When we're walking, they would slant their eyes and say, can you see? Can you see? And, you know, you're supposed to go to school and you're supposed to feel safe. And I didn't feel safe. I felt tormented. And now looking back, I just feel, I feel angry. I've never, ever spoken about this for the past two decades, two and a half decades. And so it's really nice to just be able to, to tell you 
My name is Brett Chapman. I'm a member of the uh, Pawnee tribe and I also am Ponca and Kiowa. You know, growing up in, in Oklahoma, what we would do is we would celebrate land run days. Basically, they take you out on the schoolyard and you got this little stick with a flag on it and you just go stake your claim. You know, the girls have little bonnets on. There's these little wagons. They look like covered wagons. I mean, it's just nonsense. We would celebrate Thanksgiving, you know, and you either put the little black belt buckle on or the hat or you do a headdress. You know, I can remember as a child picking, you know, you've had to pick one, I'd be the pilgrim. You know, to demean your own culture like that, a headdress has a meaning. In Ponca culture, there's only a few people that can wear headdresses, the line of hereditary chiefs, they can wear headdresses. It's a symbol of authority and respect, but it's just been so stereotyped into a joke. You know, you've got kids cutting out construction paper and putting it on their head and just kind of going around making fools of Indians. And you know, the harmful aspect of that is no one ever takes us seriously because of that. My name is Beth Potan. I went to a boarding school for high school in Alabama to raise money for prom and different dances and things. Our school would have slave auctions. Folks were allowed to raffle themselves off and stand up in front of everybody on an auction block. And if you bid the most money, then you got to keep that person for an entire day and make them do whatever you wanted. It really bothered me. I went to talk to the headmaster, and they really weren't willing to change things, but they eventually changed the name to Surf Sales, I think, by the time I had graduated. I mean, it certainly makes you feel emotionally vulnerable and a little bit unsafe. And when I think back to all of the things that my family had to endure to be able to just attend school, my grandfather had to sue the Board of Education in order to desegregate schools in the state of Alabama. So access to education is something that I've learned to really appreciate. And to have gotten all the way to the 90s, 30 years after my father desegregated schools, it makes you feel like you still don't belong there. We've had 30 years of participation, but it still is not a place that's safe for me. Important words from Beth Pawtan, Brett Chapman, Lily Lee, and Corinne Jones. As you probably know, this is our last week on the air, and we decided to spend it speaking with some of our favorite guests from the past seven years. We're devoting much of today's program to parenting. We're hearing once more from the moms and dads who've shared their trials and tribulations with us over the years. But first, we are getting some mother wit and wisdom from poet Nikki Giovanni. She's joined us a number of times over the years. Most recently, she spoke with us in May when her good friend, the legendary Maya Angelou, died. Maya had a, an embrace of life, and it's rare. You know, it's even I, I like being alive, but uh, even I... I don't come anywhere near this, that joy that she brought. Today, Nikki Giovanni is with us once again from Roanoke, Virginia. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us on this special week for us. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So tell us how you came into yourself. I mean, you, you've described <laughs> yourself as a truth teller, which you are. And I just wonder how you came into that. I, well, I, I, I don't know. Let me, let me answer honestly and clearly. I don't know. But I am the baby in the family. And I think babies look at, at life a little differently because your older brother or your older sister, in my case, an older sister, your older sister is always more talented, always more beautiful, always better able to do things. And so you end up watching all the time, and you watch, and you watch. And some of the things that you watch, you say, oh, that's good. And some of the things you watch, you say, hmm, I don't think I would do that. And 
I think that as a baby, you know, if you look at the number of writers, it is amazing how many of us are babies mm-hmm. how, uh, uh, in the family, how many of us are, are, are uh, either only children or the youngest child, because those are the people that have to watch. Interesting. You know, we, um, as you, you know, this, this is a moment of transition for us. And in recent years, you've written yourself a lot about transitions that we all have to go through, losses and so forth. What do you think has been the most helpful thing to you in working through transitions? I, I think the most helpful, you, you say in transitions, and I think you mean death. And I think the most helpful <laughs> well, yeah. thing in going, okay. I do, but also it, there are other losses. There's death, but there's other losses. There's losses of things uh, that you like, like, you know, places to work or colleagues, things of that sort. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess so, but to me, uh, if right now Virginia Tech fired me, I would consider that an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I would say to myself, okay, Virginia Tech has given me an opportunity to go someplace else and do something. The loss of my mother, my mother's death, was an incredible loss to me. And what I knew I had every uh, right, if not responsibility to, is to mourn. Now when your mother dies, and my mother died June 24th, uh, 2005, but my sister died August 10th, 2005. Mm -hmm. So we buried mommy together, but then I went from being a baby in the family to being an elder because my sister died, uh, you know, within weeks of of that. So I had a lot to do, and a lot of it, you know, you have a house you have to sell, you have things in the house, you have, you know, it's the dump, the dump, the dump. And I am um, a responsible individual, and I said to myself, Nikki, you have to do it because there wasn't anybody else uh, to do it. My aunt Anne died uh, in October, mm. so it was just going to be a, a very difficult t- uh, period. And it was, but I did what I was supposed to do. But when I did get it done, I said to Alex, who is my dog, I said to Alex, you know, now we can sit down on the deck and we can mourn mommy, or in Alex's case, grandmother. (laughs) But I got up uh, and and, and did that thing that I think Americans do. I was just laughing about I got up and, and, and poured myself a glass of wine and took it out on the deck and sat down and drank it until it was time for, you know, to change to a nice red wine, and I'd sit there and do that until it was dark, and then, you know, you go in and you start the same thing. Finally, it was Alex who actually, uh, and I laugh about it because I think that you're just not embarrassed. You, you're not allowed to embarrass your dog. And finally, <laughs> um, Alex looked at me one day, you know, about the 10th day of me doing that, and had one of those again, you know, Nikki, you know, you can't, you can't keep doing this. And I said to her, to Alex, you know, I said, you know, grandmother, which my mother, I said, but grandmother drank a beer every day of her life. We knew, we knew mommy was dying because she didn't want a beer. And so I said to Alex, well, why don't we go and get a beer and drink it for, for mommy? But I don't like beer. And I, I never <laughs> did. I don't know why people drink it. And so we went up to the local bookstore, the Barnes & Noble, actually, and looked up what is the number one beer. I thought, if I want to drink a beer, I'm going to drink, drink the number one beer in the world. And the number one beer is Utopia. It's a Sam Adams. And so I started to look for Utopia. It's $350 a pint, so you know you can't <laughs> get it in your regular you know, grocery store. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so it was just, and, and I don't know why, but the book became Chasing Utopia. And I ended up writing writing this book about the, the about the loss, the death of my mother, but also about a, a lot of people that I love. Uh, my grandmother, um, can I read your poem? Yeah, please, would you? I was yeah, going to ask. Speaking you of grandmother, yeah, please. my grandmother's yeah. a good cook, and I'm not a bad cook, but uh, not quite as good as grandmother. It's called The Right Way. My grandmother's grits are so much better than mine. 
Mine tend to be lumpy and a bit disoriented, though that's probably my fault. I always want to put one cup grits into four cups cold water with one teaspoon salt and start them all together. Grandmother did it the right way. She started with cold water that she brought to a boil, shifted the grits slowly from her hands into the bubbles, then added her salt. She also hummed while she stirred with her wooden spoon. I wonder if I should learn to sing. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with the award-winning author and poet Nikki Giovanni. She's sharing some pearls of poetic wisdom with us, and we're talking, that was a poem from her collection, Chasing Utopia. We'll talk a little bit more about, um, I don't know, you, I, 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 I'm, I'm hearing you. You're saying that uh, there's losses, and then there's sure. losses that seem like losses, but they're actually really opportunities. Well, most um, things are opportunities. If, if, mm-hmm. if your car um, breaks down, and you say, oh, gosh, you know, my car is broken down. This is an opportunity to either fix the car because you love it or to get rid of it because you've been tired of it and get a new one. I just think you have to look at almost everything as an opportunity. But losing people is a loss, and uh, Americans need to learn to mourn. We don't allow people to mourn, and I think that mourning is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, I think that it's, it's necessary that you recognize I am sad today. And I will probably be sad for a long time. When it's something like your mother, you'll be sad the rest of your life because you won't live long enough to get what what other people will call over it. You don't want to get over the loss of your mother any more than she would want to get over the loss of you. Mm, That's so true. It's funny because people often think that great art comes out of suffering. And I get the feeling that you don't agree with that at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm not uh, a big I've never fan. asked you that question. I, I shouldn't presume. I'm at, let me no. ask you this question. What do you think? No, it's, it's a good question. I, I just don't think that um, suffering is a good idea. So I, I'm not, no, I'm not in favor of suffering. I'm in favor of finding out what is the message. And sometimes the message is just simply, you know, you have a right to cry. And some other times you have to really say, as I was sharing uh, about mommy, I have responsibilities. So despite the fact that I am incredibly sad, Somebody has to get these things done. I don't have a right to to be selfish about my emotions. I had, uh, by the way, uh, if I may, I was sure. diagnosed um, now um, 14 years ago with lung cancer. And I knew that this was serious business. Most people that have lung cancer die. So the first thing I had to say to myself was, okay, I need a doctor. I need good doctors. But I also knew that it made me incredibly sad. And if anybody who's listening to us has been diagnosed with cancer, it is just, you don't want to hear it. It's a very sad thing. And I said to myself, okay, I know that if I allow myself to be sad, I'm going to make myself worse. So what I have to do is find time to be sad, and then I have to go about my business of trying to see if I can find a way not to defeat cancer. And I I would never, ever, ever use those words, but to live with it. And so what I did was I finally said to myself, okay, between 8 and 9, because my first doctor's appointment is going to be 10 in the morning, something like that. Between 8 and 9, I went into my bathroom. I have a door on my bathroom door, closed the door, and I cried. I was incredibly sad. And then I took a shower, and then I went to see the doctor. And if something happened during the day that really made me, I had one doctor that that actually said to me, you know, uh, Mr. Ronnie, I don't think you're going to live. And I did have to say to him, am I paying you? (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> I, I, I really hope if I'm paying you, send me the bill because I don't ever want to see you again. Because if I die, I'll be the first to know it. So you don't have to tell me that. You know, you have to, <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> I would recognize. Break mm, it down. Yeah, Nikki, yeah. I'm, I'm dead. Nikki, you're gone. And I just thought it was incredibly <laughs> cruel of him, crazy to do that. And so I did. I paid him and I walked out of there. But I, I didn't, I wanted people to say, well, let's see what we can do. And uh, the people that, that have carried me through this, I am now, as you know, uh, if you do actuarial tables on cancer, I am now back to the point that I have the same chance of dying of lung cancer as if I never had it. And that's the best it's going to be for people like me, but that's the best it is for everybody. Well, I'm so glad. Thank you. So do you have any advice for us as we kind of transition to whatever comes next for those of us? Oh, uh, uh, approach it with a smile. Because whatever's coming next is going to be good because you've got all of this information, you've got this talent, you've got things that you love. You have to approach it with a smile. And if you keep smiling, something else is going to happen. And you might say, well, Nikki, I'm not sure what it is. I don't know either. I really, really don't. But I know that, uh, that in that old song, good things come to those who wait. Well, that's Duke Ellington. I love you, love you madly. And what we're all trying to do is enjoy life. Life is a good idea, and it's a lot of fun. And uh, there's a reason that the first miracle, if you recall, uh, I'm a Christian, that Jesus' first miracle was, in fact, turning water into wine. He could just as easily have turned wine into water, but no, he had the sense to say these people need something to drink. And I think (laughs) if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. But that being said, Nikki Giovanni is an award-winning poet, professor, and author. She was kind of to join us from Roanoke, Virginia. And yes, we are smiling now. Thank you, Nikki. <laughs> Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Good things come to those who wait. I just relax and wait for fate to let me see the day you say to me, I love you, love you, madly. I'm Jackie Lydon, and this is Tell Me More from NPR News. Michelle Martin is away today. It's Black History Month, and this year we're observing it by digging into some of the literature that's expanded the African-American story, the memoir. African-American memoirs date as far back as the journals set down by former slaves, and these days there seems to be even more of a zeal to set out one's family history or tell a compelling personal story. So every week throughout Black History Month, we're digging into a new memoir, too, and first on our list today is someone who's very clear that buying his book is exactly what you should be doing to celebrate Black History Month. Yep, he goes right there, and if you know his work, you anticipated that. Michelle Martin was joined earlier by Baratunde Thurston. He's the digital director of the satirical newspaper, The Onion, and one of the co-founders of the blog, Jack and Jill Politics. His new book is called How to Be Black. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be back. Happy Black History Month. I'm black, y'all. It's a good week to be black. Week of the month now. You know, I don't want to take anything for granted. <laughs> okay. Just, I'm going to be grateful for the for the moments that we have. Well, you know, you mentioned in the book intro that you want to recomplicate blackness. So you think it's not complicated enough now? I think blackness itself is very complicated. I think some of the images of blackness are quite oversimplified. You know, this book is funny, but it's also it's heartbreaking in parts. Mm. Was there any pain point that didn't make it into the book? No, in fact, there wasn't much cut from the book. I'll tell you, one of the things a lot of people don't know about 
the evolution of this book. It started as full satire. And on my email list, I make a deal with my subscribers. I say, look, I'm going to give you a true story for every email I send. And I was writing these personal stories, not for the book, but my initial editor at Harper said, you have to put these in the book. And I had written a story about my father and his murder, which I never had told before publicly. It was an exclusive to this email group. And I got the most response back from individuals and from the publishers saying, we have to rethink where you're going with this. We think we can find a way to fit this in. And so I went back and the book became much more personal and memoir based after that initial set of emails I sent out. Well, let me just give the broad outlines for people who aren't yeah. familiar with you or with your work. Born in D.C. to a mom who was single for a lot of the time of your growing up. Yep. Um, in a neighborhood that, you know, your mom was actually interviewed in the paper yeah. for how uh, the extraordinary efforts that she went to to keep you safe That's right. in this neighborhood yeah. at the height of the crack wars. Yeah, the Washington Post did this big yeah. profile on trying to raise black men and in this environment. you go on to one of the most prestigious K-12 through schools in the city, Sidwell Friends School, which yep. Chelsea Clinton attended, which the Obama girls now attend. Notably, Chelsea went after I started going. I'm just going to put that out there. Maybe so I you weren't following her. I, I get it. I'm saying maybe she was following And then you went to Harvard. Then you went to Harvard, and you've been on all these lists, and you're a, 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 one of the kind of the creatives of your generation. So you've made quite a big name for yourself as a as a thinker, as a writer. Thank you. And here this memoir comes, and it's kind of like jazz. Hmm. Wow. No one said that. Thank you. That's a beautiful word, and it kind of captures what I felt in the writing, which is this range, this up and down, the the pace changes throughout, but I also hoped it still felt like one book and one story at the end of it. And it's an instructional manual, too, yeah, if anyone's yeah. interested. So I'm going I'm to ask learn. you to read from the chapter, How to Speak for All Black People. Absolutely. This is in the very middle of the book, and it's actually one of the first that I ended up uh, writing. My own experiences as the black friend were merely training exercises for a much larger role. In the classroom, workplace, and beyond, once you're known as someone who is willing to talk about race, you become an official spokesperson for your race. Often, your willingness isn't actually required. Your mere standing as a member of the group in question is taken as qualification enough. Many a black person has been blindsided by the, what do you think about insert potentially black related topic here question. Not thinking about the consequences, the non-black person asking simply reaches for the closest representative he or she can find. But for those unprepared for the call of duty, it can be a traumatic experience, leading to episodes of self-doubt, anger, and dry skin. Where this demand for black spokespeople is acute, however, is in the media. As a blogger, public speaker, and black person who writes books with the word black in the title, I've had my fair share of media exposure playing some version of the black spokesperson game. There's usually some kind of blackness emergency in which the cable networks light up a black version of the bat signal hailing any and all potentially credible voices to offer perspective. Sometimes that beam is directed toward me, but unlike Batman, I don't feel the need to respond to every hail. Black man. So that that part isn't in the book. You have to. That's the audio mix. The audio mix. So who are you calling out here? Anybody in particular that you're calling out here? You know, I depends on which side of the call you're talking about. I think in part I am calling out 
a media and business model that is shifting and thankfully fading. I'm calling out an era which we all recognize but hopefully see less of, which says we have to get a reverend to talk about everything related to black folks. We have to desperately comment on things that we don't understand to merely say that we've commented on them. And I think what we have started to see now, and, and I put myself in this category both as the object of my own satire, but also possibly as a generation of that's part of the solution, which is you have this blogger world, you have this new media world, you have these new voices emerging, and that recomplication of the image of blackness, if not blackness itself, can happen a little bit more because you have more people putting their identities, perspectives, and ideas out there. What do you hope to accomplish with this book, besides to have fun? And the story of how it started with tweets, actually, is actually very, very hilarious. It started with a bottle of wine called Negro Amaro. Yes. Or is it Negro Amaro? Negro Amaro. Negro Amaro. <laughs> is that Portuguese? That sounds like a Portuguese I, red. I, that's how Spanish little or? I knew about it. All I knew, ladies you and said, gentlemen. said, that's how black I am. That's, so. <laughs> there was a I was trying to buy some wine. I didn't know anything about wine. I didn't want to learn about wine. I just wanted to buy it. I needed a, a way to make this decision. And I saw something with the word Negro in it, and I took it as a sign from Black Jesus that I was supposed to buy this bottle of wine. And so I did. And then I tweeted at my friend Elon James White, who's a comedian who's heavily featured in the book. And uh, I challenged his blackness publicly, essentially, and said, how black are you? I bought wine because it had the word Negro in it. And that was that's the spiral black that I am. And helped. he says, challenge, son. <laughs> exactly. And there it goes. So that's how some of this, uh, this some book of the stuff born. started. But, yeah. but what do you hope to accomplish with the book? Well, I'd like to sell a lot of books. Will I you make that, that clear? That would be great. But well beyond that, I mean, one of the things is to understand what it's not. I don't want this book to feel like the last chapter, like this is my last will and testament. This is some sort of final moment. Hopefully it's the beginning. Hopefully it's a party that everybody's invited to. And I want people to talk about it. I think we're at a fun and interesting and dynamic moment in the history of people. I can shout from the mountaintops who I am, and others can hear me and have the option to respect that. Serfs didn't have that. Slaves didn't have that. From the 1940s prior, no one had that. Essentially, we worked, we died very young with rotten teeth, and that was it. So what I think we have a great opportunity to do is to close that gap between who we really are and who the world expects us to be. And I, and I also just hope that the humor makes it a little bit more accessible. This topic can be so tense and no one ever wants to even approach it that maybe this could open the door to some people who were closed to it before. You know, I, I wanted to ask you about the humor because yeah. I have um, friends, acquaintances who are African-American, particularly men, who yeah. will never be photographed smiling mm. because they feel that they have to be hard. perceived as hard yeah. or serious. They would find themselves at home in the chapter, How to Be the Angry Negro. But, 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 but your author photo, you're smiling. Yeah. There's humor throughout. And I just wanted to ask you about the, whether the humor is itself political. It absolutely is. I mean, I'm political. So the things I do are, I'm a humoristic, that is not a word. I'm a humorous person <laughs> and very well educated, obviously, because I can just make up my own words. Uh, and so those two things are constantly at play. But humor is a powerful medium to communicate, to engage, to, to reach people who would not be reached. I've been doing even more study into the sort of history of humor and satire in particular, and I found this great quote from Horace way back in the day, and I'm going to butcher it, but essentially he says, he who badgers less can convince more. And, you know, that's not to say that badgering doesn't have a place. You need people in all angles of attack and change, but for me, this works. So the smiling I'm a happy dude. Why wouldn't I be? 
uh, because you had to yeah, but navigate at, some tough, I don't know. But the navigation led yeah. to the happiness, you know, and, and the pulling through it with the community around me. I also think it's very important people really understand this. I am not on a pedestal preaching like I did all this. I think I had some genetic talent. I clearly had an incredible mother. I have an incredible older sister who's had my back. And I had a community of infrastructure around us, the D.C. Youth Orchestra Program, the Boy Scouts. I was in an all-black Boy Scout group. All these were part of the infrastructure that kind of helped me. So I'm super happy because I've been helped as well and I've kind of seen and navigated this crazy journey. If you're just joining us, this is Tell Me More from NPR News. I'm speaking with Baratunde Thurston. He is a comedian. He's digital director of the satirical newspaper The Onion. He's the author of a new memoir called How to Be Black. And just to remind, every week during Black History Month, we are joined by someone who has penned a memoir. Um, why was this the right time for this book, in your opinion? Ooh, I think for me it was uh, I had matured enough myself as a writer to be able to pull off something like this. And I think politically where the country is. I think the Obama moment has been oh, you have a, a Nigerian name. One. And I have a, um, how, a Nigerian how excellent name. Is that? It's, it was written, <laughs> Michelle. It was written. You too could be president. Or maybe not. Slow down. Or maybe Slow not. Down. But, you know, I do want to I want to lift up something uh, in the book because you also talk about the very interesting reactions that different people have or different audiences, maybe I could mm -hmm. put it that way, yeah. have to your name. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, my name is Baratunde, which is derived from Babatunde, which is a very common name in Nigeria. My people, so far as I know, are not Nigerian. So enter the first hurdle. When I meet Nigerians, it's a great moment because there's this instant flash of recognition, then confusion, and usually irritation, annoyance, or anger. Because they're just like, what do you mean Baratunde? You mean Babatunde. <laughs> and they try to tell me what my name actually is. I'm like, well, I got a birth certificate that says it's this. And they're like, well, no, there's something wrong with your name. Meanwhile, you know, I've met various types of white people who are just like ecstatic. They're like, what does it mean? Does it mean the drummer on the tops of the mountains? And, you know, it's got to have some deep tribal essence to it. And, and it actually well, kind of does, right? It means one who was chosen. That's the colloquial translation of it. Uh, and then you have a lot of other black people like Baratunde. That's, that's, that's normal. My name is, you know, this hybrid between a car and a bottle of wine, you know, like, so we, we have so much uniqueness already in, in the subset of African-American culture that it doesn't really shock. But doesn't that imply that, that there's a constant judging? I mean, that well, is a part of the sub, the sub theme of the book is a constant judging yeah. of who is black enough. What does that mean to be black mm -hmm. enough? But I just want to ask you a question that a, yeah. one of my colleagues, a, a host in another program in another city, just recently asked me, mm -hmm. who is white. He said, are you surprised? that there's still this judging about what it means to be black, what it's supposed to mean, what, who's allowed to do what? I'm not surprised. One, we're programmed to judge people. We have pattern recognition. So we are constantly trying to overcome our biology with civilization and culture and manners. Uh, so I'm not surprised at that base human level. I hope that we're moving beyond some of the rougher edges around that and just getting more nuanced with it because we should have more models at our disposal to be less shocked. But you also lift up something in the book, which I, I want to spend just yeah. a minute on, which I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. is, this is something that other people, that people have been known to ridicule. And I, I, I assume you're being serious okay. in the humor. Uh -oh. The importance of being the black friend. Yes. You say that there is a value to this and there, that you want to lift that up. Talk there is, a little bit about that. There's absolutely a value. And I think we have, publicly at least, 
assumed the value accrues to the white group of friends. It's like, oh, these white people have a black friend. Good for them. They feel more progressive or hipper by extension. But the black community and both communities get a lot out of that exchange. If we just retreat to our own existing assumptions, it's more difficult to grow. And so having an actual peer-to-peer relationship, again, softens the prejudgments. You may end up with judgments anyway, but at least they're based on an experience you had rather than things you may have heard or may have read or cues you picked up from a mainstream media society, which is not fully respectful of the range of but individuality. You, but why do you even have to defend that? I mean, isn't that integration? Isn't that what integration was supposed to be about, which is that people would meet people who are different from them. We'd all be better. And I, and why I, do you even have to defend that? I don't. I mean, you don't have to defend it. You could just let it go. But I think you have when charges are sort of levied at people that say, oh, because you're a black person who's hanging out with that group, you're this label. You're an Oreo or a sellout. That judgment is what you're combating, not just the act itself. The act itself doesn't require defense. It's human to want to connect with people. Um, so I think that that is okay. I also think we're hopefully at the younger levels too, these uh, barriers are getting more porous. Kids all over the world rocking out to hip hop and break dancing. And there's a global culture at a youth level that's emerging that's allowing kids to talk to one another across previously thicker lines. And that's, I think, a good sign for the future. Well, before I let you go, do you have any tips for me on how to be black? So, Anything, yeah. Any, any, just polish me up a little bit. So there's, um, the book closes on a plan for the future. It's called The Future of Blackness. I propose kind of a grand unified theory of blackness. And some elements of that I think you could benefit from, and maybe everyone listening. One, we've had this assumption that the people who are oppressed are supposed to fight the system of oppression which makes sense. It's in their primary interest, but it's also in society's interest. And so what I'd love you to do is kind of find one of your white friends and officially designate that it's now their job to fix racism. And you could have a ceremony. You could hand over a baton on the front porch just or a, in a church or a park. Just a little pass off. Just an actual symbolic but substantive gesture that says, hey, why don't you lend a hand to this? And then what do I get to do? What do I do? Well, then you get to chill a little bit. You could work on um, one of the ideas that came out in the book in a conversation with Jaquetta Zatmari, a comedian friend, was, you know, intracultural exchange within black communities. She's like, I'm rural. I don't understand. Well, people in Chicago and L.A., they talk a whole different language. So we're going to work on a Negretta Stone app that allows black people to communicate within one another and really try to build that up a little bit. So maybe you could work on that in your newly liberated time. Well, thank you. You freed up some time. I was actually going to take a nap. (laughs) Baratunde Thurston is the author of How to Be Black. He's also a comedian and the digital director of The Onion. And he was nice enough to join Michelle here in our Washington studio. Well, we have had ourselves an adventure. This selection of NPR stories reinforce that life is a journey. It's not a destination. And often we can't control what happens to us. However, we can control how we respond to what happens to us. And sometimes those responses become our legacy. For those of you not familiar with the Black National Anthem. I'll say goodnight with this as the background. It's been a delight. Your seat at the table is guaranteed. Remember, you're worthy. You're not alone. You have everything inside of you that you need to succeed. 
I'm Tyra G. This is Radio Fairfax in Fairfax, Virginia. Until next time, loving you, living intentionally. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day because March Till now we stand and